Oh, Lord, blessed. Blessed be your glorious name tonight. And if Job could say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be your glorious name. We pray that you might humble us before you and before the throne of grace tonight to receive all the rich grace that's available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, before we open the word, we give you thanks this morning for the baptism and the receiving of Owen and Abby into our membership. Our Father, we thank you tonight that little Reagan, Bartley, Scott, and Marcia's granddaughter, John and Christie's little niece, came home to Greenville this week from Charlotte. We give you thanks for that. Our Father, we pray tonight for Jenna De Prima, for Ellie and Enzo's sister-in-law, Alex's wife, and Pam's daughter-in-law, we pray as she has a second round of chemo on Wednesday that you might be with her that you might sustain her, that you even might be pleased to heal her. This is our prayer. And as we hear your word tonight, as we gaze into it, we pray that as we think of uh, this matter of the heart, that we would have great joy to know that you are the great keeper of the heart, that you are able to give us new hearts, that you're able to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that is to completely transform us from the inside of out, inside out. So we pray for grace, we pray for your Spirit's work, and we bless your name. And it's in your Son's name that we pray this. Amen. Amen. Well, someone has said life is all about the heart. In fact, in a related way, Pastor Jamie mentioned this morning that the great German reformer Martin Luther said memorably there in the very first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And no doubt repentance like faith is a matter of the heart. Yes, repentance is this change of mind and Paul says in Romans 10, with the heart man believes, and even Thomas Watson said it's by these two gospel graces of faith and repentance that the believer flies these gospel wings, if you will. He makes his way to heaven. So tonight as we come to Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, I want us to see Moses is here on the mountain, that is Mount Sinai, the mountain before which Israel encamped. We read about that in Exodus 19 and verse 2. And we're told in the last verse of chapter 24, right before our text, that Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And it says that Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, kids, I don't know about you, but that's a long time. Now, we don't know that he knew he was going to be up there for 40 days and 40 nights, 
but he wasn't. That's the context of our passage and of our reading. So turn with me and your copy of God's Word to page 65 in the ESV Chair Bible. Follow along with me as I read the Scriptures for us. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1 and concluding in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And that's an important phrase, for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns. And fine twined linen. Goat's hair. Tandaram skins. Goat skins. Acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod or the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me, or let them make literally for me, a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So what's going on here? God has a plan, a plan for the construction of a sanctuary. And you might notice two terms, sanctuary and tabernacle. And it's plainly stated in verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, or literally in the midst of them. And it communicates the sense that their act here of making is for him. Like the way you select a particular card. And Cheryl and I are like a little bit different, I've realized this. I will go and just buy a blank card and write what I want to write in a card. And I realize Cheryl says she looks for a card that already expresses what she'd like to say, okay? But that's the idea of something for another person. And this was to be for him. Let them make literally for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. I like the way the, in, the net Bible translates this. Let them make for me a sanctuary so that I may live among them. It's for him. It's not simply let them make a sanctuary, but for me. Let them, them do this for me that I may be with them. It's for them. But this plan will require lots of material. You see that there, especially in verses 3 through 7. And it's from the people of Israel that God will receive it. It is a time to give. And so the Lord prescribes to Moses a kind of free will offering that's to be received from the people. He says, they are to take for me a contribution. They are, take, they are to take, they're to collect what's being contributed by others, all right? 
And it's that powerful two-word expression for me. Twice there in verse 2, that they take for me a contribution. And then the end of verse 2, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall read the, receive the contribution for me. And then again in verse 8, let them make literally for me. It's the same grammatical construction. So how is this a matter of the heart? Where do I come up with this sermon title? So my exposition is simply three points. It's very simple. Number one, God is at work in the hearts of his people. God is at work in the hearts of his people. Number two, God is at work in the hearts of his people in different ways. Or you might say it adverbially. God is at work in the hearts of of his people differently, or he's at work differently in the hearts of his people. And then thirdly, God is at work in the hearts of his people to fulfill his end and purposes. God is at work in the hearts of his people. God is at work in the hearts of people in different ways. And then thirdly, God is at work in the hearts of his people to fulfill his end and purposes. You might know that only once do we find the word heart in this text. It's right there in verse 2. From every man whose heart moves him. Literally, this is from every person, all right? It's fine to interpret it that way, to translate it that way. But he's at work moving them from every man whose heart moves him. And we, we don't want to, we, we want to refuse here to look at second causes, that when the word went out that there was this need for all the raw material for the construction of the tabernacle and the furniture associated with it, it's God who's the great mover of the heart. And it's important that we understand that the state of our heart determines everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, everything we will. All right? Everything. In fact, in Proverbs 21.1, Solomon was clear, even saying this as a king. He says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where, wherever he wishes. He turns it wherever he wishes. So our first point, God is at work in the hearts of his people. The very idea of a contribution in the form of a free will offering assumes that God is at work in his people. God is at work. When you go out to eat and you have a 10 or a 20 in your wallet and you know that the tip is somewhere between a 10 or a 20, it's God that's moving you. You're not doing this apart from his influence if you decide to leave a 10 and say, I hope that's enough, or if you're more generous and leave a 20. And God is at work in his people. In fact, the son says in John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from my influence, and that includes your heart, you are powerful, you are powerless, you are fruitless. And the good news, though, is that the believer is united to Christ. And so are you in Christ, then he is at work in you, no matter how low or discouraged you feel 
at any given moment. As Pastor Jamie is preaching through the book of Hebrews, I don't know if you've thought about this yet. When you, see, when you take these three words, great high priest, maybe you've made them an office. But in a sense, if you take the word great and use it as an adjective, as he is the great high priest, this is the one who even at this moment ever lives to intercede for you. He is at work in you. He is at work for you. And so truth always trumps feeling. In every rock, paper, scissors triumph, the truth of God's word, that he is for you, that he's in you, that he's at work in you, trumps the feeling that he isn't. Are you where you desire to be? No, but he's at work in you. Do you and I still struggle with indwelling sin? You bet, real hard, but he's still working in you and on you, chiseling away the rough edges, refining you through the ordinary fires of temptations and affliction. It's why in his book, The Discipline of Grace, that Jerry Bridges talks about good days and bad days and says, if your day looks even like a Roman seven day, all struggle from the moment you get out of bed to the, to the moment you put your head on your pillow at night, there's no difference that God's love is for you. He's at work in you if you're his. He's refining you through those ordinary fires, those of temptation and affliction, not intended to crush you, but intended to make you to be a trophy of grace. In fact, Paul told the Philippian believers that God is at work in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is why they were to exert themselves to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. I didn't know it last night, but God sent rain. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't know it till you looked outside and your grass was wet and there was water puddled on your driveway. You weren't thinking about it last night, but God was sustaining your beating heart. He was sustaining your breathing lungs, your brain activity while you slept so that your kidneys and your liver and all those things were functioning without any conscious thought on your part. For some of you, you checked your bank account this past week, and the Lord has already sent you your federal and state tax refunds. You're even tempted to book a cruise. Be careful. Okay. He's at work in every sphere of this world in your life, but especially your heart. He grieved, you know this, the state of man's heart, of mankind's heart. In Genesis 6 and verse 5, it said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man or mankind was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was Solomon, the great king who loved his children, who said, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's in Jeremiah 17, 9 that we're told that more deceitful than anything Anything you could tag on it, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's a reason why David prays 
when he considered the works and the word of God in, in Psalm 19, Lord, acquit me of hidden faults because the heart's that deceitful. There's a reason that the Lord Jesus in Mark 7, 21 through 23 said that for from within, out of the heart of man, not by a regulated diet of food, but out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He says, all these evil things come from within. They defile a man. And there's a reason that Peter said in 1 Peter 1, through 23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here it is, watch this. You purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. He said, now love. Love one another earnestly from what? From what source? From a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. This heart is a central and key theme in the scriptures. And his first point is that God is at work in the hearts of his people. Brothers and sisters, you may feel static you may feel that you are, as Pastor Jamie preached about this morning, in a season where you've been dull of hearing. But praise God, are you his? All who come to me I will in no wise cast out, and none will snatch them from my hand. And as surely as from eternity he predestined you to come to faith in Christ, he will complete that work he first began in you so that you will beautifully and fully reflect the Lord Jesus. He is remaking you into the second Adam's image. But there's a second point, and that is that God is at work in the hearts of his people in different ways. And you see this in this text if you'll think of it this way. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And the implication is, is that the movement of God in one heart compared to another is different. That's even why there's this variety of things that are needed in, in the contribution. I was thinking about that in any given Sunday here, maybe a fellowship meal, someone might make banana pudding or here's poppy seed chicken. And then the really healthy ones want to bring roasted kale, okay, and everything in between. And everyone brings their contribution, right? Maybe it's homemade chocolate chip cookies or cream corn or it's these little meatballs, all these different things. And God moves and works in his people differently. Each and every believer is a one-time prototype. The brother beside you, the sister in front of you, has different gifts, graces, desires, capacities, perspectives, besetting sins than every other person and every other Christian. I don't know how you'd ever prove this saying, but I've heard it asserted that no two snowflakes are alike. I don't know how you'd ever prove it, but it's the true of Christians. No two of us are alike. All right? 
And that's not bad. Different strengths, different weaknesses, varying gifts, a myriad of talents for their mutual benefit in building up of the body of Christ. And I've realized this. There's some that would notice that there's a paint, that there's a door frame that needs to be repainted. But another person just knows the person sitting over there that looks crushed and downcast of soul. One sees the paint missing on the door frame. The other sees that sees the need for comfort, the need for mercy in another person. And it's all for the mutual benefit in building up of the body of Christ. Not just the universal church, but visible locally gathered churches just like Grace Baptist Church of Taylor's. In fact, Paul celebrates this fact in 1 Corinthians 12, 17. If the whole body were at what? An eye, where would the, be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And we really can aim legitimately then for diversity in the right sense of that word. And unity. So let me ask, do you accept the particular work that God is doing in your brothers and sisters? Or even the rate of work that he's doing in them? How do we see it here in this passage? Look what he says. We see it in this phrase, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Now, to be clear, what is taking place here is God is allowing in these words to Moses and what he's to speak, the message he's to give the sons of Israel is to allow that there are differences in gifts and even the rate, maybe not what is given, when it is given, but even the amount that it's given, all right? Some of you, it's a big deal to write a check for $100. Some of you would say, I'll write a thousand and not blink. It's not a problem. Sometimes that's just the ability to give, but sometimes that's just the gifting, all right? Every man's heart was moved in different ways and in a different place or pace to bring a particular gift for the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Somehow, God worked in their hearts to bring sufficient quantities of the raw materials that was needed for his dwelling place. And how, we did, how he did this, we don't know. But he did. Some brought metals, right? Gold, silver, and bronze. I thought about this, how this even works with people's interests. Some people are interested in owning precious metals. So you can imagine some brought gold, silver, bronze. Some of you like to sit in the middle of a meeting and be knitting. You're into threads and putting that together. So some brought yarns of blue and purple and scarlet. Others of you, you would change out like linens, tablecloths by the season on your table, right? You maybe even enjoy sewing. Some of you might be learning to sew. It says that others opted to offer fine linens. That was in the list. Even others brought rough goat's hair, all right? 
kind of like a guy with a long beard that's then twisted together. Maybe that's what the goat's hair looked like, but it's really, really coarse. You could almost sweep a shop floor with it. And then there was tanned ram skins and goat skins. You can kind of see the animal types, the, the, the animal husbandry types may have brought those. And then there was the woodworking shop types, the, the woodworker guild who said, hey, I've got some acacia wood. I, I've been wondering what I would do with it. And they would bring that. And then there's the essential oil crowds, okay? They were the ones who loved light. light. They wanted the oil for the lamps. We're, they're all about ambience, okay? And, and, and the fragrance, they love light, right, smell, everything for the mood. The oil for the lamps, the spices for the anointing oil, and even the fragrant incense. And then there was the jeweler types. You know, it's like uh, the eight-year-olds that will dig down in their pocket, and they'll show you rocks. You know, like, like a child that never found a rock they didn't like, okay? And they pull that out. It says, they were to bring onyx and setting stones for the ephod and breast pieces that Aaron and his sons would wear in their role as priests. Again, we weren't told, this, we're never told this was a coordinated effort. The message, and this is more than Aaron saying, or Moses saying to the people of Israel, the word there for speak is give them this message, give them this charge that they are to receive this contribution. Kind of like we have these wooden boxes that receive your contributions in the form of tithes and offerings for the work of the gospel here. God was working in the hearts of the people of Israel to move them to give towards the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture. And that looked different in the hand of every person. And I think we can acknowledge in terms of application that at any point in the life of our church, some of us have time to give more than anything else. Others have talents. And there's things we feel like gifts that we can bring, things that we can do in terms of contributing. Uh, I've so appreciated the ladies that have contributed even making Gifts like, we're going to do one for Doug and Sherry and send up to them in Maine. And we, we did one for Sid and some of the ladies worked on that together. And then others of you not only maybe have time or talents, but you have treasure. You want to give. You want to give generously, freely, because you believe you can't give yourself to the point of poverty. But the point is that it looks different in the hand of every person. What is given how much is given, and even when it's given. I want, I want to move then to this third and final point, and that is that God is at work in the hearts of his people to fulfill his end and purposes. This is about God at work in his people to give for this sanctuary that they might make for him a sanctuary. And I want to distinguish for a moment. That word for sanctuary is connected to the word for holy, kadosh. All right? Something to be set apart. And that speaks to its significance. The tabernacle 
or tent speaks more to its function. They're both there, all right? They're both. And so, in this sense, the, the word sanctuary significance is that what makes it unique is that it's there that God says, I may dwell in their midst. And it points forward to a day when we read, as Paul says to the to Corinthian believers, that the reason, one, one great motivation to seek purity as and in, in pursue holiness as Christians is that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that every thought, every word, every action is done, is given as those that understand that God dwells in the midst of his people. And we have that in this down payment of the indwelling spirit in each of us as Christians. But look, focus just for a moment now on verses 8 and 9. And again, here you are, sanctuary, speaking to its significance. And then more technical, the tabernacle and its furnishings or furniture, which we'll see about in two weeks, in the morning of the 30th. I'll preach a broad sermon through the next three chapters from uh, chapter 25, verse 10, all the way through probably 27, verse 19. Almost three whole chapters as we look at the specifications for the tabernacle and for the furniture. But the point is that it is God moving in every man's heart so that they would give and contribute for God these raw materials in the amounts, the items, and in the amounts, and at the time that God has moved them to do this. Let me illustrate this for a moment. I want you to think, normally some of you might be planting a garden right now, okay? And we speak of a seed sprouting, right? You put a bean plant in the ground, and you think of it like it's sprouting as though of its own accord it does that, all right? And it's organic. But it is God, the great maker of all, who takes that seed in dried form and takes this mixture of sun, heat, moisture, and soil to take something hard and apparently inert, though we know it's not, and to literally cause it to become alive in front of us, right? That's why literally like an okra pod in summer grows an inch a day. If it's two inches today, it's three tomorrow and probably four two days later. You could almost watch it and see it get longer. I think squash does that particularly. But here's the point. It's God at work. Refuse to look at second causes. Though it says the language is from every man whose heart moves him, it's God who's the first and primary mover. And why is he doing this? What was this invitation to contribute designed to achieve? Look there in verse 8. He says, and let them make for me a sanctuary. Literally, a place for my dwelling that I may dwell 
in their midst. Turn with me to, to Ezekiel 43 and verse 9. Though all the language of the new covenant passages in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 speak, speak to this, it's really only in Exodus 25 and then in Ezekiel 43 that you see this language of God dwelling in the midst of his people. Look there in Ezekiel 43 and verse 9. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Now let them, let me read this again. Let them put away their whoring and their dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. What was the end and purpose for why and how God was at work in the hearts of his people? Why would he compel them to give? Why would he move them? It's that they might make for him a special place that he would dwell in. You know how it is? when it's raining cats and dogs and you don't have a good front entry and someone's coming into your house, the one thing you want to do, the one thing you're compelled to do as a host is to tell them to come get out of the rain as quickly as possible. And it's okay. You, you, know, you tear open the door and they come in and there's umbrellas and there's wet shoes and there's water all over. That's fine. You'll dry it up. But in that moment, the one thing that you're wanting them to do And to be is to be with you. And that's what God is wanting. That's what's being communicated here. It makes sense then why we read in the book of Revelation that the dwelling place of God is with men. My brothers, my sisters, tonight as we think of these nine verses, and there's Moses on the mountain maybe early in that tenure of 40 days, and God gives him this message, these words, the idea of a free will offering, a voluntary contribution. And he lists all these things. And you can only imagine that when he first speaks and he describes all these things, it, w- it might have been something like if you type into a Google search and you say, I have one pound of pasta two zucchini, you know, uh, two tablespoons of turmeric, uh, two yellow onions, and one cup of heavy cream. What dish can I make with that? And they might have wondered, what are we going to do with all these things? They understood the message was it would be for this sanctuary. It would be for this tabernacle and all its furniture. But they didn't fully get the picture yet. But the call was out that they would bring quantities of each of these and that they would make for him a sanctuary. God, my brothers and sisters, is at work in the hearts of his people. He's at work in the hearts of his people 
in very different ways. And thirdly, he's at work in the hearts of his people to fulfill his ends and his purposes. Let me ask tonight, what is God doing in you? What areas of repentance and faith, new paths of godliness, obedience to his word, what do you need to do? What is what would the Lord have you do? What's in front of you? How do you do that faithfully? And not necessarily even do it alone, to do it with the help of brothers and sisters. Remember Thomas Watson's quote, that there are these two gospel graces that act like wings, faith and repentance, that the Christian flies and makes his way to heaven. Two responses to the gospel, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, believing all the promises of the gospel, in this turning from going our way and doing our thing and wanting what we want to saying, Lord, not my will, but yours. To do that, that's a matter of the heart. And that seems daunting. But I want to remind you of these words just to close You'll turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 for a moment. May these words never, ever get old for us. Ezekiel 36. When you feel like Christian in the slough of despond and you are stuck in a struggle with sin that you cannot seem to escape, the reminder for you, Christian, is that those words that were futuristic in verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put with you in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He has done it. He has done it. Keep moving. Keep moving. And for those of you who think, I have a dead heart. I feel so dull of hearing. I feel so dead in spirit. I feel so intensely rebellious that I don't want what God offers richly and freely through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just, I know it's there, but I just feel stuck. He gives you these words of promise. He says, I will give you This is something he'll do not for your sake mainly, but for his. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey 
my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And he goes on to say all these words of blessing. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. What is he saying? He's saying, I will do for you and in you what you could never do for yourself, but I will do it. And when I have done it, it will be a matter of fact that will always trump feelings. Brothers, sisters, this is a matter of the heart. May God help us to come to him again and again, time and again to say, oh God, keep working in my heart, for it is yours.